You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. We turn again, congregation, to the Gospel according to John, chapter 7. We pick up the reading at verse 37 and read through to chapter 8, verse 20. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, the streams of living water will flow from within him. But this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man's the prophet. Others said, He's the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? And thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. You mean it deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Has any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that the prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then each went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. 
How are you? Or here you are, appearing, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. We turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 16. The verses 18 to 20. Appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. We turn in third place to James chapter 2, the verses 1 to 13. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor at my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves to become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you've insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging your court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For you said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be, be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, I proclaim to you this afternoon the word of our God as we could read it from John, Deuteronomy, and James. 
May I ask your attention in particular for the word of our God as we find it in John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Dear congregation of the Lord, it'll be true of each of us. We look up to those who are our leaders. Look up to them in the sense that we expect from them an example that we are to follow. That's true, meant to be true in regards to the nation. It's true in regards to the office bearers of the church. It's also true in our homes. We look up to dad, meant to look up to dad and mom, to set the example how we're to do things. The people of Israel in Jesus' time had leaders that the people were meant to look up to. And one can think of the Romans as their political leaders, but they were also the teachers and the Pharisees recognized leaders in the midst of the people. But it turns out that those particular leaders Israel had were setting an example no other leader in Israel, no father and no mother, no leader in a peer group setting, was to follow. They set a bad example. And Christ set the better Example. I summarize the sermon this afternoon then with this theme. The faithful leader judges according to God's standards. And I ask your attention for three points. The first is the failure of the Pharisees. The second is the standard of the Lord. And the third is the lesson for leaders. Our text this afternoon, congregation, has in our translation, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, and the quote follows. It turns out that the Greek makes no mention of the people. The Greek has, when therefore Jesus spoke again to them, and there follows the quote. And then indeed you can interpret the pronoun them as the people. Yet the right or wrong of that translation depends on what you do with the words before John 8, 12, the words between the two bold lines at the beginning of chapter 8. You will have noticed as you read through the scripture reading this afternoon, that between chapter 7, verse 52, and 753 are these words in brackets. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8, verse 11. Many manuscripts don't have these words. Hmm. Okay. Commentators also tell us 
that the language of 7.53 through 8 verse 11 is different from John's normal language. And that would lead one to think that John's not the writer. Or else that John wrote at a different time in his life when his way of writing had changed. We're also told that the flow of thought from chapter 7 through chapter 8 is interrupted by this anecdote about the adulterous woman in the temple. And all of that has led critics to conclude, at the end of the day, this part does not belong in the Bible. And so we should discard it. It's not inspired. On the other hand, it's fact that in the providence of God, the church has accepted these words of chapter 753 through 811 for many centuries as part of the word of God. All major English translations include this paragraph in their Bibles. We read through the verses 753 through 811, but the adulterous woman. And we recognize it. It's got the feel of Scripture. It doesn't sound apocryphal. And the more we're busy with chapters 7 and 8, the more it appears that, look, it does fit. As a matter of fact, here's an example of the right judgment over against the wrong judgment of the Pharisees at the end of chapter 7. So what do we make of this section of Scripture? How does it fit? What place do we have to accord it? Then I would draw to your attention, congregation, what the Apostle John wrote in chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. Yes, we understand that Jesus did so much more in the three years of his ministry than John wrote down, let alone Matthew, Luke, and John together wrote down. But some of these other anecdotes that Jesus did ended up being written down as little snippets of information, perhaps, and did the rounds. And somehow, in a way that we do not know, it would appear that this anecdote of the adulterous woman found its way into the Scripture at this point as an illustration of Jesus' correct form of judgment. In terms of the interpretation, then, and the explanation of chapter 7 and 8, we do well, I would think, to remove the anecdotes of the adulterous woman from the reading of the passage and understand it as a footnote to this passage. So yes, it belongs, but in the same way as we find footnotes in so many of our books. There's one flow of thought, and an extra point expands on one point in the flow of thought. That then is how we should read it this afternoon. The result of what I've just said is 
As far as the translation in chapter 8, verse 12, we need to remove the words the people and go with the Greek. Jesus spoke again to them, and the them is a reference to the conversation, the Pharisees at the end of chapter 7. That's also why chapter 8, verse 13 mentions the Pharisees challenging Jesus. Chapter 7 had told us of Jesus in the temple, therefore the Feast of Tabernacles. This says chapter 7, verse 2. In the course of Jesus being in the temple for this feast, he did what he had to do, and the people began discussing amongst themselves who this man might be. Some said, he is the Christ. Chapter 7, verse 40. Surely this man's the prophet. 41, he's the Christ. But others wondered, how is that possible? He comes from Galilee. There's a discussion amongst the people. But the leaders, those who wanted to set the trend, were adamant that the answer to the question, is he the Christ, yes or no? The answer is no, he's not. And so, chapter 7, verse 32, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. He disturbs the peace. He's a fake. Let's get him out of here. The moment came when those sent to arrest him ended up back at the address of the chief priests and Pharisees, verse 45. And the Pharisees and chief priests say, why didn't you bring him in? And those guards sent to arrest him said, well, no one ever spoke the way this man does. And it's that comment congregation that generates... The statements, the retorts of the Pharisees in verse 47, you mean has deceived you also. And then a discussion how it is simply impossible that this Jesus is the Christ. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees condemn Jesus. The tone they set for public conversation, their leaders... The tone they set is, you cannot accept that this is the Christ. Look at verse 48. Has any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No. But this mob, there's nothing, there's nothing on the law. It's a curse on them. You would believe Jesus the Christ? You're lost. You're cursed. You don't know what you're talking about. They have passed judgment on who Jesus was. And then the question becomes whether their condemnation of Jesus was in accord with the Scriptures? And the answer is no. And I say that because of the word we read from Deuteronomy chapter 16. There the Lord had been emphatic that the people, or the judges, were to judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. God had insisted But that is what the Pharisees and chief priests were doing. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't trust Jesus. They felt threatened by Jesus. And hence their public condemnation of Jesus, their insistence that the people reject him as the Christ. And this we have to understand 
is partiality. This is favoritism. Hence, Nicodemus' comment, verse 51, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And Nicodemus was right. That's indeed the stipulation of the law, do not judge rashly and unheard. But his reprimand brings about the response of the Pharisees, verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? Check it yourself and you'll find out that a prophet doesn't come from Galilee. And then congregation, you get Jesus on the scene. Chapter 12, chapter 8, verse 12. When therefore Jesus spoke again to them, he says... I am the light of the world. What's he doing there? Jesus' congregation is hooking on to the words of the Pharisees in verse 52. Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So what does Jesus do? Jesus looks into it and finds out that the scripture says that a prophet indeed will come from Galilee. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, says the prophets, In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, that's the northern tribes known in Jesus' time as the land of Galilee, And the prophet continues, but in the future, God will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And who is this light? Verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there be no end. We understand when Jesus says in verse in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He is claiming that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. He's the light that shines in dark Galilee. This child born to be the government of the world. Galilee had been dark. Those tribes ended up in exile early. But God's promise was light in darkness. Jesus tells the Pharisees, go read your Bible. And read your Bible well. And you'll find that I am the light of the world. In darkness, I give you light. In other words, the Pharisees have judged wrongly. The Pharisees have judged without doing their homework, without reading their Bibles. It turns out, congregation, there is a bit more here. When Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's also hooking into the words of 
the psalmist in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. We sang it. Jesus' point here is, he is light as God is light. He is light because he is divine. He is God. So Jesus can continue in John 8 verse 12 and say, not only I am the light of the world, but he can add, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows the light. Can you, congregation, draw me a picture of following the light? How would you do that? Would you be carrying the light yourself? And we understand if you carry the light yourself, you can't follow the light. Because you're carrying the light. The notion of following the light means the light's in front of you, going its own way, and you have to follow behind. The biblical picture here is of the cloud leading the people out of Israel. That cloud is the light. God, present with his people, leading them, and they need to follow. They don't carry the light. They walk behind the light. And you know what happened, how it was that Israel left Egypt behind the light, following the light. And because they followed the light, they received deliverance. It didn't always go easy. They felt caught by the Red Sea. But the Lord opened the way and they followed the light, the cloud, through the sea. Across the desert. Into the promised land. You know, the thing is, that in the promised land... The cloud no longer functioned as the light. It disappeared. Not because God no longer would lead the people, but instead because the way he would lead them changed. How so? Moses wrote the five books of Moses. So, the people who entered the promised land had the word of God. David says of that word, Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The people get to follow, not a cloud, but the stipulations of the word. You want to know the way to go in the walk of life? Says the Lord, listen to the word. Follow the word. That is your light. And that is why David says, 119 to 106, I have taken an oath and confirmed it. I will follow your righteous laws. Because those laws are light on my path. But that includes then such instruction as Deuteronomy 16. How do you pass judgment what sort of judgments do you make on the situations around you? 
And the lights that God gives to his people on the pathway of life, a light coming from the word is, obey God's instruction. That is light. Then you know how you need to judge in the various circumstances you're in. That meant for the Pharisees, they could know it was wrong to condemn Jesus. They could know it from the light of the word. They needed but follow that light. When Jesus now says in chapter 8, 12, I am the light of the world, Jesus is wanting all the world to know that they are to follow him. More, he he makes light for everybody. And yet his light is not different from the lights of the word, but he and the word are so closely connected as to be one. Is he not the word of God himself? Jesus listens to the word so perfectly that his deeds are light, as the word is light. And that's to say that Jesus shows the better way. That Jesus sets the example in the circumstances one's in. Specifically now, how do you judge? And Jesus shows the way how to judge properly. For example, why the footnote of the woman. Our second point, the standard of the Lord. That footnote, the verses 753 through 8 verse 11, sees Jesus in the temple one day teaching. And you can see it in the eye of your mind. There is Jesus sitting sort of in front of an audience of I don't know how many people. And he's teaching that. In the course of his teaching, in walk these Pharisees, says 8 verse 3. I don't know how many. A number of them with a woman in tow. They interrupt Jesus' lesson. They say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the Lord's told us to stone such a woman. What do you think? And then you and I, congregation, can see what's happening next. What happens next? This audience. None of them are looking at Jesus anymore. They're all looking at the woman. They're all going, she's an adulteress. Is it true? Doesn't matter. Her reputation's in tatters. What prompted the Pharisees to do this? Their own agenda. So the scripture says, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what does Jesus do? What Jesus does? Verse 6, he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. He's doodling. Why does he do that? 
to make clear that he cannot take the question seriously. He can't take the question seriously because the Pharisees know better than to come with this accusation in this way. But the Pharisees won't let him go with his doodling. So, verse 7, they kept on questioning him. So he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, those are words very familiar to us. We understand them to mean that if you are not perfect, you are not to judge anyone else. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that these Pharisees, in their accusing her, are themselves guilty of sin. And that is why they're in the wrong with what they're doing. If Jesus says, any of you is not now sinning by your coming to me with this woman in this situation, throw a stone at her. Jesus condemning the Pharisees with a big log in their own eye. What was the log in their own eye? What was their transgression? Well, think it through, congregation. Look at verse 4. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Well, maybe so, but I believe it takes two to commit adultery. So where's the other partner? Why do they take her and let him go? There are cultures where adultery is wrong only for the woman, not for the man. But that's distinctly not according to what the, the, the Pharisees have been taught. They know the law of Moses. Leviticus 20, verse 10, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. So where is the man then? And we understand, here's favoritism. More than that, Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us in verse 6, on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death. But no one shall be put to death in the testimony of only one witness. In John 8, there are zero witnesses. Look at the way the passage is put together. Say these Pharisees, verse 4, this woman was caught in the act. They don't say, we caught her, we saw this. But they're passing on what somebody else has told them. There are no witnesses here. Further, John 17, verse 7 says, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting him to death. Then the hands of all the people. There are no witnesses. And therefore, no one to throw the first stone. What we have is gross partiality. Judgment on the part of the Pharisees, where the Scriptures do not allow judgment. That is why Jesus doodles on the ground. 
And when they press him, he says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And as he kept on doodling, the Pharisees began to think and to realize that Jesus has a point. They are not allowed to judge where the Scripture has not passed judgment. And so one after the other, they walk away. And what's left? It says, verse 9, only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And we read that and we see in the eye of our mind two people, Jesus and the woman. But the Greek says, Jesus was left and the woman in the midst. Recall the classroom. The people Jesus was teaching. And they're watching. And they're looking for leadership. How are we supposed to judge? What's Jesus going to do now? So what does Jesus do? For the benefit of his classroom, verse 10, Jesus straightens up from his doodling, and he asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? The answer, verse 11, No one, sir. So Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. He refuses to condemn. Why? Because the law gave him no permission to condemn. There were no witnesses to her crime, allegedly. But then Jesus can't go by hearsay. And so he says, neither do I condemn you. Flip side. Do learn from this and sin no more. We understand. Jesus' response is so different from the response of the Pharisees. Jesus is the light of the world. He's learned from the word of God, which is the light on the path of life. And so he works with what it instructs him. Since the conditions were not right to make a judgment, conditions God had stipulated were not met, Jesus refuses to pass judgment. He obeys the word. And so is light for his classroom to follow. That brings us to our third point. The lesson for the leaders. That classroom. They went home again. They were fathers. With little children around the kitchen table. They were members of a peer group. Able to influence their friends. Were they from now on to pass judgment as the Pharisees did, and as is so common in society? Judgment based on your own agenda? Judgment based on public opinion? Public ba- uh, judgment based on the, on the heavyweights around you? That's so human. But this classroom of Israelites was to learn, no, this is not how you do things. 
you pass no judgment unless the Lord in His Word allows you to pass judgment. So what Jesus says, verse 15, you judge, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. And in this classroom, isn't to pass judgment on anyone either. Well, verse 16, if I do judge, my decisions are right because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. The Father's given the Word. The Word shows me the parameters I need to abide by when I make judgment. All of my judgments need to follow the judgments based on the Word of God. We understand here was instruction for the classroom. But it wasn't instruction only for the classroom. You and I are told this. Why are we told this? Why simple congregation? The Lord knows that we're as human as the next person. And so inclined to follow our own standards of what is right and what is wrong. And so to tut-tut about what he's done and what she's done. And let judgments pass around the kitchen table. And it colors how our children see Johnny and Peter and Sue and Mary and whoever. Quick to judge. Yeah, that's us. And in the process, others get hurt. And the Lord says, My people, I am the light of the world. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. He refused to pass judgment where the Lord did not allow him to pass judgment. Jesus' example, congregation, is something the Apostle James worked with. And he pressed it upon the church how to work with this material. We read it from James chapter 2. James described a situation where there's a man coming into your meeting wearing gold ring and fine clothes. And you say to him, sit over there, place of honor. Another one comes in dressed in shabby clothes and you say, go sit over there. And James says, haven't you shown favoritism? Now we understand why. Yes, you have. Four. Is saying to a poorly dressed person, you sit over there, the kind of thing that Jesus himself did. And we understand the answer is no. What did Jesus do? For the down and outers, he went to the cross. So much so, that on the day of his crucifixion, while he was on the cross, he could say to that criminal, hey, who was he? He could say to that criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus refused to pass judgment on that man. Why? 
Because God had declared him righteous through Jesus' blood. One of God's chosen ones. But if God did not condemn the criminal, then Jesus shouldn't condemn him either. If God would not see him as unrighteous, and so talk him down to the throne of God, then Jesus dare not do so either. But then it follows. Neither should you and I talk down such a man. And that is why the Apostle's word to the Corinthians has place here. In the congregation of Corinth were people with a background, says 1 Corinthians 6, with a background in adultery in idolatry, in homosexuality, in drunkenness, in slander, swindling, and the list goes on. And the Apostle Paul calls these idolaters and adulterers and prostitutes and homosexuals and swindlers and thieves of the past, calls them all saints, righteous. For he refuses to judge those whom, or to judge wrongly, to condemn, those whom God has declared righteous, he recognizes, I cannot speak differently than God in his word. This word is my light, a light on my path. That is why James can say in James 2, The same God who said, do not commit adultery, also says, do not murder. And the point of do not murder is, if you do not love your neighbor, if you condemn him where God does not condemn him, you kill his reputation. So if fathers around the kitchen table allow a form of conversation that judges a brother, a sister, though the Lord himself says, that's my child washed in Jesus' blood, then you've shown partiality. And says the apostle, you have condemned where God does not condemn. And so you set for your children an example that's contrary to the example God would set. We understand there is a lesson here. Fathers are leaders. So are mothers. So are teachers. So are office bearers. So are we all in a peer group setting. How shall we lead? What's the mood, the atmosphere we shall tolerate in conversation? Much judgment, easy condemnation. We understand that is not the way of the Lord. He's given His Son for our sin, to forgive, to cover our sins. But if He's shown me that much mercy, then I must show mercy to another. 
If my God doesn't condemn, I may not condemn. Conversely, if my God does condemn, and there are times he does, he calls a spade a spade, then there I must condemn too. And set the example for my family of how, what that looks like. Easy to set the right atmosphere in the home, in the talking about others? No, it's not. Here's room for much self-denial, room for much humility, much listening to the word. God has given the light of the world. Christ has come. And though he's ascended into heaven, his light remains the Bible, the word in our path. And so for you, for me, leaders in whatever place we are, to speak according to Scripture, only according to Scripture, Follow the light. And then, we and our children will not walk in darkness, but have the light always. For the light doesn't fail. That's our God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.